The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The fact that the court granted cert in these particular cases makes me think that the that the court is inclined to issue a ruling that is very solicitous of the government's claimed interests in these state secrets cases. And I say that because other cases in which lawsuits have been dismissed on state secrets ground or in which state secrets claims have otherwise been upheld have been appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has never granted cert in them. So the fact that it granted cert with respect to two cases where in fact the Ninth Circuit held that state secrets either could not be applied at all or you know had been preempted by statutory law or that the state secrets privilege shouldn't result in the outright dismissal of the case, that to me suggests that the court is, is looking to push back on the Ninth Circuit. So I myself am worried that things are going to move in, in exactly the wrong direction where it's going to become easier for courts to defer to claims of state secrets privilege. I'm Rohini Kurup, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, October 18th, 2021. It's been a decade since the Supreme Court decided on a case involving the state secrets privilege, a common law rule that allows the government to block the release of state secrets in civil litigation. In this term, the justices will hear two cases involving the privilege. To talk about the two cases before the Supreme Court, United States v. Abu Zubaydah and FBI v. Fazaga, and the state secrets privilege more broadly, I sat down with Liza Goitin, co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, and Bob Loeb, partner in Orrick Harrington Sutcliffe's Supreme Court and Appellate Litigation Practice, and former acting deputy director of the Civil Division Appellate Staff at the Department of Justice. We talked about how the state secrets privilege works, the controversies surrounding its use, and what we can expect in the two Supreme Court cases. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 18th, Liza Goitin and Bob Loeb on State Secrets. Bob, could you get us started here? What is the state secrets privilege? How does it work and what is its purpose? And maybe if you could add, what counts as a state secret? Sure, happy to do so. Thanks for inviting me here today. So the government has a lot of classified material, probably way too much classified material, which is subject to people can seek disclosure of it under FOIA and other ways. And the government puts in objections to its disclosure when you're directly seeking the information. So the state secret privilege comes up where information that would otherwise be classified comes up in the context of litigation where you're not directly seeking the information from the government, but it's it's uh, related 
to either civil litigation against the government or litigation between private parties where someone is seeking information that the government thinks would harm national security. And the government, if it's not already a party to the case, will then intervene in the case and say that disclosure of that information will harm national security and that should not be allowed. And sometimes that'll mean that the case can continue just without that information. And sometimes the information will be so central to the case that it will require dismissal of the entire case. It's a doctrine that has been created by the courts as a privilege recognized under common law. It's been said that it has constitutional dimensions. The Supreme Court in the United States versus Nixon in 1974 said it was sort of an out uh, related to the Article II duties of the president to protect national security and conduct foreign affairs. It was recognized as a evidentiary privilege by the Supreme Court in the United States versus Reynolds in 1953, recognizing that there are instances when it's necessary for information to be withheld in that in private litigation or in litigation against the government where there's governmental secrecy at stake revolving information about military intelligence, diplomatic efforts, etc. So your question was also, what are the standards for invoking the state secrets privilege? So as I mentioned, there's a lot of classified information there, and it's pretty easy for the executive branch just to classify materials. The state secrets privilege and invoking it is, is much more arduous for the executive branch. As the Supreme Court said in Reynolds, it, it cannot be lightly invoked, and it has to be done through a formal claim from the head of the department, which is in control of the particular classified information. And so you need a declaration basically from the head of the agency. So if it's a CIA or the Department of Defense, et cetera. And at least since, 19, since 2009, um, the Department of Justice also conducts its own review of it. And you also need a sign off by the attorney general. So you have to have a declaration from the head of the particular agency. Typically, it'll be the CIA or um, NSA or DOD or the FBI. And you also need the personal approval declaration from the attorney general who has to review it. And, and those then declarations and the material and explanation of why is a state secret are then submitted to the court. And as to the standards they apply, the case law is not entirely you know clear about what the standard is for the information other than it harm national securities. But under that 2009 guidance, which is still in effect, it's been revised over time, but basically the same. The privilege can only be invoked where there's a genuine and significant harm to national defense or foreign affairs, national security. And then it can only be in, in, invoked to the extent necessary to safeguard those particular interests. Yeah. And Liza, the state secrets privilege has often invited controversy, and many, including yourself, have been critical from time to time of the government's invocation of the privilege. Can you tell us a bit about why that is? The privilege has become controversial since 9-11, and in part that is because it has been used much more frequently since 9-11. It's really, there's been a significant increase in the government's reliance on the privilege And it's been used to shut down lawsuits that have challenged some of the worst abuses of the government in the wake of 9-11. So it's been used to shut down 
challenges to warrantless wiretapping that took place and challenges to torture and rendition to torture. And it has essentially prevented any accountability in the courts for those really significant abuses and violations of the law. And and that's really the, the source of the controversy. I would add to that, that even though the privilege attaches to evidence, it is an evidentiary privilege, Uh, The government has increasingly been using it to try to dismiss entire cases at the pleadings stage before the relevant evidence has even been identified, let alone shown to be privileged. And the courts have have often gone along with this. Uh, The two cases currently before the Supreme Court are, are notable exceptions. And that's very problematic. The courts have uniformly said that invocation of the privilege should rarely result in the dismissal of the entire action. That should be the exception. But it's become fairly commonplace uh, within the admittedly small universe of state secrets cases. And the fact that these dismissals are happening before the relevant evidence is identified and evaluated for privilege is particularly concerning. Essentially, the courts are making predictions. They're saying, well, we predict that there's not going to be uh, a way to go forward without this evidence. We predict that it's going to be central to, to the case in some way. We predict that it's not going to be possible to disentangle privileged evidence from non-privileged evidence. Courts don't ordinarily do that when they're ruling on the admissibility of evidence in litigation. They don't say, well, we predict that all of the evidence in the case is going to be uh, inadmissible for various reasons, even though we haven't looked at it. So it, it is an extraordinary thing to shut down these you know, lawsuits based on the privilege, and, it, and it's being done too often and, and without enough scrutiny. I would add to that that far too little weight is placed on the harm that results when these cases are dismissed. Several courts have framed the issue as as one of the individual litigants' interest yielding to the broader public interest in keeping the nation safe. But there are systemic harms on both sides of the balance. It's not just the harm to the particular plaintiffs whose rights can't be vindicated. Those are individual miscarriages of justice, which can be extremely disturbing. But there's also the systemic harm to the rule of law. Uh, Because as Bob pointed out, a significant percentage of what our federal government does, uh, certainly in the national security space, takes place in a a classified environment. And that means the agency takes the position what they're doing can't be disclosed to the public. So if you cordon off this fairly sizable universe of government activities from judicial review, that creates a a dangerous accountability-free zone for the executive branch. And, and, and that consideration is, I think, is given insufficient weight in the case law. Liza, you mentioned some of the post 9-11 uses and, and abuses of the privilege. Could you take a step back and walk us through how the privilege has been used historically, both leading up to 9-11 and then post 9-11? Has that use been consistent and has it been used for the same purposes since it was formally recognized in Reynolds in 1953, or has its use changed over time? As I alluded to, its use has increased significantly, and it increased significantly after 9-11. And along with that came an increase in the government's use of the privilege to try to dismiss entire lawsuits at the pleading stage, rather than to simply take a particular document, record, piece of information, out of the litigation and then proceed with the litigation. Um, So it's really being treated 
increasingly as a jurisdictional bar rather than an evidentiary privilege, or maybe I should say a justiciability bar. And the Reynolds privilege in particular is not, the Reynolds version of the state secrets privilege is is not supposed to be used in that way. So I think that's a disturbing trend. Um, And as I mentioned, there were these programs of warrantless wiretapping and torture. And I emphasize programs because it, it supports what I was saying earlier, that this just isn't just about individual litigants' access to the courts and their ability to vindicate their own personal rights. This is about the lawfulness of the government's actions. This is about the rule of law. And these cases have been shut down entirely in in some instances. And there have been other reasons why some of these cases have been shut down, qualified immunity, political question doctrine. But the, the sum total result of all of that is that these major, major human rights and, and rule of law issues have not been able to be resolved by the courts 20 years after 9-11 and after, after these programs were implemented. So that's really disturbing. And we did, that is not something that we were seeing before 9-11 when it was used much less often and used more often as an evidentiary privilege just to take discrete items of evidence out of a case. And Bob, I'm curious if you could speak to how courts have responded to the executive branch's invocation of the privilege. Liza touched on this in her her answers, but have they generally been deferential to it? Has that changed at all in recent years? Have courts, you know, become more selective in recognizing the privilege or less? I think it remains the case that the courts still provide what the Supreme Court said in Egan was the utmost deference to the executive branch in assessing when something is a danger to national security. And whether there's a significant harm to national security or foreign affairs, and you have a head of an agency coming in and saying so and providing a declaration, that's a really a predictive judgment that it's very hard for even an aggressive judge to second guess. So the courts remain, I think, very deferential to the executive branch. And we've seen where there's pushback from the courts, it's trying to say, not second guess the invocation of the, the privilege, but trying to say the case can move forward or not move forward without that information um, in the particular instance. Or as in the Fazaga case in the Supreme Court, that there's another statute that covers instead of state secret privilege, and there's a review under that statute of it. Just So we've had pushbacks in in other ways, you know, in the Zubeda case, in the in the which is the Supreme Court, which was just argued a week and a half ago, that was an instance of where the Ninth Circuit thought the case could possibly proceed, or the district court should try to have it proceed without the, you know, so-called you know sensitive classified information being disclosed. So I think even when you do have courts pushing back, they do feel like they're a little bit out of their league in second guessing that, you know, the attorney general or the head of a intelligence agency uh, about national security matters. Yeah. Liza, anything that you want to add on how courts have responded? I would agree with Bob that they've been extremely deferential and that when they have pushed back, it hasn't really been on the national security judgment. But I would say that even even if courts are inclined to defer to the government as they are on these national security judgments, that doesn't 
completely answer the question of, of whether courts have been too deferential in other ways in the sense that courts could, for example, require, they could not dismiss the case at the pleading stage, but rather go through discovery to identify what evidence is privileged and what evidence isn't. And in that context, they may be deferential to the government's claim when looking at a particular piece of evidence, but at least they're not acting in a predictive fashion about whether the evidence will be privileged. They will actually have the evidence in front of them, or at least have have particular claims with respect to particular items of evidence in front of them. And that would be a way to scrutinize these claims more carefully. They could also insist on seeing the evidence itself rather than just looking at the government's affidavits. The Supreme Court has made clear that that is something that that courts can do. And uh, it is not it is not the norm for courts to actually look at the evidence itself. But that would be another way for the court to assure itself that, in fact, the, the claim of privilege is valid. And and I say this with the original state secrets privilege case, uh, United States versus Reynolds, very much in mind, because in that case, it turns out that the privilege was invoked too broadly. What happened there was that the widows of some contractors who were killed in the crash of a military aircraft uh, brought a lawsuit alleging negligence, and the widows sought to obtain the accident report uh, for the crash. The government argued it claimed the state secrets privilege uh, on the ground that the plane was on a secret mission and it carried secret equipment. And the court never actually looked at the report. And the, and the court said, that's fine. The court shouldn't have looked at the report and everything, you know, this was a valid invocation of the state secrets privilege. Later, when the report finally came out much later, it, it turned out that the report very clearly substantiated the widow's claim of negligence throughout the report and that the few potentially sensitive details about the plane that were in the report could easily have been redacted. So, you know, this is a case where if the court had taken that further step and actually looked at the evidence, the court might have said, okay, you know, there are there is some privileged information here, but there's a way to redact it and continue uh, and give the information that the plaintiffs need for their case to the plaintiffs. So there's a way for courts to be more involved and to scrutinize these allegations more carefully, even while according uh, significant deference to the predictive national security judgments of the government. And I think it's interesting that under the current executive orders and, and rules in the executive branch about invoking state secret privilege, that in the Reynolds case itself, the, the executive would have had to limit their invocation of the of the privilege to those very little snippets of, of descriptions of some of the technology of the airplane and all that other information that would have supported the widow's actions would have, you know, come out today if under the way that the state secret privilege is supposed to be invoked today. But of course, that raises another question, which is, we don't know the degree to which the Department of Justice is complying with its own policy, which is it's, it doesn't create any enforceable rights, the policy, but it was it was issued in 2009. To give you an example, uh, one thing that the policy commits to is periodic reporting to Congress on uh, its use of the state's pri- secrets privilege and, and why it invoked the privilege. There have been, according to a letter that was uh, recently sent by Senator Blumenthal and three other senators to the attorney general, there have only been two instances since 2009 in which such such reports have been made. So the department, and I, I don't know what you consider periodic reporting, but given that this privilege is invoked 
regularly and has been invoked many, many times since 2009. The fact that there have only been two reports submitted, one in 2011 and one in 2016, suggests that the, that the department is not you know, faithfully adhering to every element of its policy here. There's another part of the policy that requires the department to refer allegations of credible allegations of wrongdoing to the inspector general if those allegations are effectively shut down in court through use of the state's secrets privilege. The Department of Justice responded to some questions for the record in testimony before Congress by saying, uh, we can't tell you if we've ever done that or not, because those referrals are, are confidential. So maybe we've complied and maybe we haven't, but we just don't, the public has no way to know. Uh, so it's, it's, <laughs> I would love to think that that policy is being, uh, you know, closely adhered to it, it. It certainly from the little information that's public, I don't have a lot of confidence in that. Let's switch gears a bit to get into the two state secrets cases before the Supreme Court, this term that Bob alluded to. The first is United States versus Abu Zubaydah, which the court heard earlier this month. And the second is FBI versus Fazaga, which the court will hear in November. Bob, you wrote a great piece for Lawfare a few days ago after the oral arguments in the Abu Zubaydah case that I'd love for you to talk about. Before we get into the oral arguments, though, can you give us a background on that case to get us situated? What is it about and what is the executive branch asserting the state secrets privilege over in that case? Sure. And and for the listener, if you want a more thorough uh, description of the background, uh, Rohini's has a uh, post from a couple of months ago, which has a, a much more thorough and really detailed background of that case, which is worth uh, reading. So in short, the Abu Zubaydah case is about a alleged senior Al-Qaeda official, former associate of bin Laden, who has been classified and held since his capture as a law, law of war detainee at Guantanamo Bay. And according to, there's been a lot of materials which have already been declassified regarding him and his treatment, that he was captured in Pakistan in 2002, and, but, but before he was sent to Guantanamo Bay, that he was interrogated at possibly several black sites in foreign countries. And the allegations and even admissions of, of his treatment are pretty well known about him being waterboarded many, many times. And sleep deprivation and other uh, what they called enhanced interrogation techniques, others calling it torture, in that regard. So Zubeda's lawyers and many people believe that one of the black sites uh, was in Poland, and that has been widely reported, but it has never been uh, admitted by Poland, and it has never been admitted by the U.S. government that there was a black site in Poland or that Abu Zubeda was detained and was interrogated there, mistreated there. And Zubeda's lawyers filed a complaint in Poland seeking to hold the Polish officials responsible for his alleged torture in that country responsible. And as part of that, the Polish government requested from the United States information from two former CIA contractors who were involved with his interrogation to get information about his interrogation and to basically confirm where it took place. And the, the U.S. government, there's a process, a treaty between the two governments about cooperating in criminal investigations called a Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty. And the United States denied Poland's request, saying, citing national security concerns, that they were not going to provide information from these two CIA contractors. 
Uh, what makes it interesting is that these two CI contractors and other litigation have provided already testimony about uh, the particular treatment of Zubeda and others. So that is a, a pretty public information. But what I think Zubeda's lawyers want is, a, is confirmation um, from the U.S. government and confirmation from these uh, CI contractors that the black site was in Poland. So uh, Zubeda's lawyers, after that MLAT failed to get the information, brought an action in U.S. court to seek uh, depositions, a, a discovery order from a U.S. court to assist a foreign government in its, in its investigation. There's a statute, 28 U.S.C., 1782, which can permit that. And uh, the United States government came in in responding to that request for that, that same information that it was denied under the MLAT, invoking the state secret privilege, saying that the you know, information regarding where Zubeda was held remains a state secret. They had, again, you know, this, invoking it requires a declaration from the head of the agency. So they had the head of the CIA, CIA director at that time, Mike Pompeo, submit a declaration asserting the privilege to, to block that that request. Ultimately, the issue went up to a three-judge panel in the Ninth Circuit, and they held that remanded the case to the district court for the court to determine whether uh, the non-privileged information about uh, Zubeda and his treatment could be revealed without revealing the information that the government wants to protect. Uh, but previously, the district court had said that you, you really couldn't do that in this case, but it was remanded to the district court. Then the uh, government sought further review in the Ninth Circuit. They have the full court here. There were 12 dissenting judges there who said the information uh, should have been protected and the case should have just been dismissed, but they failed to overturn the Ninth Circuit's decisions. The, the U.S. government, through the Solicitor General, sought review in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, granted review based on the government's arguing that the the Ninth Circuit's decision posed a risk to national security, allowing this information possibly to come out. And the case was, as Rohini said, just argued uh, on October 6th. And what were the government's arguments before the Supreme Court? And what questions did the justices ask the acting solicitor general? The government's arguments there were that even though the information regarding Zubeda's treatment uh, is out in, in, in public, that the information about where the black site is remains a, a, a highly classified information. And even though there's public speculation or reporting about that it was in Poland, that the United States government has not confirmed or denied that, and the Polish government has not uh, admitted there was a black site there. And the other countries need to be able to trust um, U.S. intelligence and U.S. foreign affairs officials when they make promises of confidentiality uh, when they're cooperating with us on, on intelligence matters, that we will not reveal their secrets. So if Poland's not willing to reveal that it was involved in this, to the extent that it was, that the U.S. government cannot be forced to disclose that. And that here, by having these former CIA contractors uh, provide testimony in this Polish proceeding is inherently saying that a U.S. court finding that their testimony is relevant. Because under the statute providing these depositions, you're only providing them as relevant testimony. So it's basically a U.S. court saying, yes, this is relevant because the CI contractors were in Poland doing their interrogations there. And, the, and that would be completely inconsistent right, with the promise of confidentiality 
the government provided to uh, their, their partner countries who set up these black sites and allowed the interrogations there. So there were some aggressive questionings to the acting solicitor general for the Biden administration who are continued. So you had the Trump administration invoked the state secret and the, the current administration continues to support that and defend that vigorously in court. And so there were questions on, you know, who should get deference as far as how sensitive this information is? Um, should there be deference on whether the in- testimony of these two CIA officials can be tailored to avoid disclosing it? Is that something we're just going to defer to um, the CIA director? Or is that something a, a court that's really more in their expertise is, can I segregate information you know, sufficiently or not? So there were a bunch of questions from uh, Justice Kagan and Sotomayor and the, and the Chief Justice Roberts uh, about that. There's also, you know, questions just saying, you know, at some point it becomes farcical. Uh, that was the language of Justice Kagan, to, you know, for you to be saying this is a state secret when like everyone in the world, you know, knows where this black site was. And you're just saying, and I get that there's sensitivity on this matter and that you made a promise, but at some point it, it just is not a credible invocation of a state secret. And you need to have a showing, you know, of a significant harm to national security. And it really is there a, a credible harm uh, in this kind of context where the information is so broadly, you know, reported and understood by, by the public. There were some interesting questions raised also on this question of official confirmation, because essentially what the government was saying is it's different to have the information out there that there was this black site in Poland than it is to have the government officially confirming it. For one thing, it's not that the information is out there only through speculation or media reports. It's the European Court of Human Rights found that that some of this torture took place at a black site in Poland. Polish authorities are the ones who are who are opening a criminal investigation into the complicity of of Polish officials in the torture. Former Polish officials have acknowledged that that you know that, that there was this black site in Poland. So this is not just kind of speculation that would be you know confirmed. But but beyond that, even even more interesting is that it's the government ha- is trying to have it both ways a little bit with Mitchell and Jessen on the one hand. Uh, the government kind of wants to disown them a little bit and has expressly avoided saying that they were acting as agents of the CIA. But then at the same time, they're saying that the test of the government is arguing that the testimony of or the depositions of Mitchell and Jessen would constitute official confirmation of the location of the black site. And so one of the things that the Ninth Circuit said was you can't have it both ways. If they're not agents of the government, then their testimony can't provide official confirmation of anything. The other thing that was interesting about this case is both the district court and the Ninth Circuit found that there was some information that was not privileged, such as the existence of a CIA black site in Poland, and some information that is properly privileged, including, for example, the names of individual Polish officials who were involved. And the district court said it's not going to be possible to disentangle this going forward. Uh, The Ninth Circuit first of all, pointed out that at least in theory, this information could be disentangled because it has been disentangled in another case. Uh, There's another lawsuit, Salim, in which uh, Mitchell and Jessen actually did testify about similar information. But beyond that, the the panel 
basically said that the district court hadn't tried hard enough. It had just sort of assumed that you wouldn't be able to disentangle this information. And the Ninth Circuit said, you got to do more than that. You're not supposed to just lightly dismiss cases based on the state secrets privilege. You've got to look at what tools you could apply in terms of maybe using code names for for certain people uh, in Poland or whatever the case may might be to try to allow this this case to go forward. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, the, uh, there was actually confusion in the Supreme Court. Justice Breyer, I think at one point, asked, you know, didn't the president of Poland already admit publicly that there was this black site where Zubeda was mistreated in Poland? And I think the uh, acting uh, Solicitor General's response was that was the former Polish president and that the current uh, government of Poland and their intelligence units have never, you know, made any official confirmation of that. And, in, and unless and until they do, the U.S. government, I think, feels bound to adhere to its promise of confidentiality in that regard. There was also confusion at the Supreme Court about the point that Lise is making about the other, you know, can you get the information? Can it be segregated or not? And uh, there was a series of questions as, can't you allow uh, Abu Zubaydah himself to testify? Can't he provide information about his treatment. And I, I think that was a real sort of sideshow at the argument because Zubeda's lawyers have talked to Zubeda and they know what he claims, you know, occurred there and his treatment. And they're really not seeking information about how he was treated because so much of that is already in the public sphere. And also they've talked to Zubeda and, and, and have that information from him. What they really want is confirmation of where the conduct took place and confirmation that it took place in Poland. And they want these CIA former contractors to testify about their activities in Poland and to provide their testimony relevant to the Polish inquiry because they, it was in Poland. And, and, and I think Zubeda's counsel had a hard time sort of dealing with those questions about, and the government counsel with the questions about, can't you get this information from Zubeda? Because they weren't seeking this information from Zubeda. This case isn't about trying to get it from them. Again, he can provide information about how he was treated, how he knows how he was treated. No one's trying to thwart that information from getting out. What, what Zubeda can't provide information on is to officially tie uh, the black site to Poland and speak in the way that the former contractors can if they were allowed to testify uh, in, in this matter. 
Bob, I'm not sure that's, I don't think that's entirely accurate in terms of saying that Abu Zubaydah is free to, to testify to whatever he wants. I mean, he is, he is still at Guantanamo and the government has taken the position and continues to take the position in proceedings down in Guantanamo in the military commissions that detainees' memories of their treatment are classified and that they are not allowed to, to testify about what happened to them. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to overstate that. So, uh, so Zubaydah's lawyers are allowed to meet with him and discussions with him, so they know what he knows, and they're they're they have been cleared to have top secret, you know, clearance, so they get the information from him. Now, if they get information from him that they want to use in other forums or have him speak in other forums, it's subject to a protective order where that information then has to go through the various agencies to see whether it can be released without harming national security, and we're his treatment has already has been subject to the testimony in public and had been declassified in a number of reports, it would be then cleared for release by those agencies because it's already been disclosed. It could possibly be that he has additional things that he'd want to say about his treatment and, and that it would not get through that clearance process. So it, actually, when this issue came up at the Supreme Court argument, the uh, acting Solicitor General said, well, there's been no request uh, by Zubeda's counsel to have Zubeda testify as to this Polish inquiry. And if and when they do, there is this protective order process. They can tell us what information they want him to testify to, and we can, you know, get it cleared. But we haven't done it because there's been no request made by them. And again, there's been no request made by them because that's not really what they want. What they want is confirmation about where it occurred, which they're not going to get official confirmation or, or any confirmation from that from Zubeda. Yeah, and I, I accept that that is one of the reasons why they, they wanted to get that information from Mitchell and Jess. And I guess the part I don't accept is that somehow uh, Zubeda would be allowed at any point to testify about what he experienced, uh, because even though some of that has been disclosed uh, publicly in various ways, and even at, at some level officially confirmed, and we can argue about what has been officially confirmed and what hasn't, but e- even then, I have no doubt that the government would make the same claim that it made in this case, which is that you cannot disentangle the non-privileged evidence from the non-privileged evidence. Therefore, he should not be allowed to testify at all because he will inevitably stray into matters that have not yet been officially confirmed. So, so I, I, I see absolutely zero chance under current case law, under the government's current positions, that Zubeda's testimony could ever see the light of day. I think that's probably one reason why why it wasn't sought here. But I agree with you that there was also this very critical issue of of where the torture took place. And as sort of an interesting occurrence at the argument was Justice Gorsuch said, I want you to file a letter with this court explaining whether the government will object to allowing him to testify and provide information regarding these matters. And Justice Sotomayor then sort of jumped onto that as well and said, and that you'll do that without asserting various privileges and whatnot. So uh, we will see. I don't think that has been filed yet uh, with the court, but I assume that letter will say pretty much what the uh, acting Solicitor General said was, A, there's been no request, and B, once there's a request, there is this process, let us explain to you how it works, and that the information needs to be cleared. But you don't really often see in, in a ar- argument before the Supreme Court that one of the justices sort of demand uh, a letter from one of the parties explaining something that wasn't really litigated before the court uh, as this request that Zubeda testify himself. So that was really kind of a very interesting and provocative turn at the argument. You've both mentioned that the key here for Zubeda's team is to tie the conduct to Poland 
But Zubeda's counsel made an interesting argument that I'm not sure that we saw in the lower courts, which is that he is not planning to ask Mitchell and Jessen, the two CIA contractors, if their conduct took place in Poland. And the justices seemed a bit unconvinced by that. Can you, maybe Bob, starting with you, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, the counsel for uh, Abu Zubeda, David Klein, he, that was his first sentence in his argument. He goes, I am not planning, if once once I get these contractors at a deposition, to ask them where their conduct took place. I'm just going to ask them what they did. Um, so this is all of, you know much to do about nothing about, about location because I am not seeking that. I just want to know what they did and when they did it because he's trying to tie it. He thinks he has proof that uh, Zubeda was held in Poland during a particular period in between 2002 and 2003. So he wants them to confirm that they conducted interrogations during that period and what they did during that period. So those assurances, I think, came up pretty short with a number of the justices. A, because the information about how he was treated is already largely in the public sphere. And more importantly is, you know, the conduct for this deposition that is being sought in the subpoena being sought by Zubeda is only possibly can be issued by a U.S. court if that U.S. court is finding that the information is relevant to a, a Polish inquiry into uh, mistreatment of Zubeda. So having a U.S. court come in and taking a look at this information and looking at the request and finding that their testimony is relevant to a, a torture in Poland is basically having that court on behalf of the United States government, you know, admit the relevancy of that information, i.e. that the torture occurred at a, a Poland uh, black site. And that's the very information um, the government says cannot be revealed. And I think that's something that the, the all justices from, you know, the newest justice, Coney Barrett and Kagan and, and Thomas and, and Alito were continuing to go back and back. Why do you actually need this information when so much is out there in the public? And really even say you don't, even though you're saying you don't want this information to show it that the black state was in Poland, isn't that what this is really all about? And you can't sort of, you know, pull a fast one on us here. Liza, what can we take away from these oral arguments? Where does this case seem to be going? Well, from the oral arguments, I take that there is at least one justice on the Supreme Court who is a little troubled by the fact that Guantanamo is still open and by how things are going down in Guantanamo. But of course, that has nothing to do with it or not directly relevant to the state secrets issue. I I will say that the fact that the court granted cert in these particular cases to me by itself, leaving alone the oral argument, makes me think that that the court is inclined to issue a ruling that is very solicitous of the government's claimed interests in these state secrets cases. And I say that because other cases in which lawsuits have been dismissed on state secrets ground or in which state secrets claims have otherwise been upheld have been appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has never granted cert in them. So the fact that it granted cert with respect to two cases where in fact the Ninth Circuit held that state secrets either could not be applied at all or you know had been preempted by statutory law or that the state secrets privilege shouldn't result in the outright dismissal of the case, that to me suggests that the court is is looking to push back on the Ninth Circuit. So I myself am worried that things are going to move in, in exactly the wrong direction, where it's going to become easier for courts to defer to claims of state secrets privilege rather than harder. 
And I, and I think that was also the concern of Justice Sotomayor at argument. I mean, she was the only one who really showed strong skepticism of the invocation of the state secrets here, but she suggested at argument a way the case could be resolved without the court reaching the state secrets issue. I think she's concerned that this case will be used by the new broader conservative majority to further entrench the state secrets doctrine and to further limit the roles of the courts in reviewing the invocation of the privilege. So she, she suggested in a question to the acting solicitor general whether uh, this case could be resolved on a, a more narrow ground that here because the government made, there was an official request from Poland to the U.S. government under that treaty, the MLAP, for this information, and it was officially denied by the government. She says, you know, can't we just rule in this case that where there's a such a, a foreign government is seeking the information and it's denied in that way, that a private party can't come in attempting to assist that foreign government on that very same request and try to circumvent that treaty process. And the government, that was their backup argument in their merits brief. And they you know, welcomed a ruling on that ground as well. But you can imagine that Justice Sotomayor might try to put together a majority in this case to avoid a having the court opine on the scope of the state secrets privilege and on how much deference is provided to the CIA director and the uh, attorney general in this kind of context in order to like basically do no further harm on, in this area. Let's talk about Fazaga now, the second state secrets case before the court. Liza, this is a bit of a complicated case, but as best as you can give us sort of the, the overview we need, can you give us a background on the case and the state secrets issue at question? Sure. Uh, the question in Fazaga is whether a provision of FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, effectively displaces the common law state secrets privilege to the extent it requires courts to deal with state secrets in a different way than they, than they might if they're proceeding under the common law. Uh, the lawsuit was brought by three Muslim Americans who alleged that the FBI paid a confidential informant to conduct a covert surveillance program in Southern California known as Operation Flex. Uh, where the informant went into mosques and otherwise gathered information about Muslims based solely on their religious identity. That's the allegation. The case has become somewhat famous uh, because the informant in the case, Craig Montiel, ultimately uh, came to regret his involvement. And he has testified that uh, the FBI tasked him with spying on Muslim Americans quite broadly without any particular targets that he was going after. And he was asked to stir up trouble to sort of talk about jihad and talk about terrorist activities and see who he could tempt, essentially. It worked so well that leaders of one of the mosques actually reported him to the FBI and they got a restraining order against him because they thought he was potentially a terrorist and they didn't like the way he was talking in their mosques. So so the case became became famous for that reason. Uh, the government asserted the state secrets privilege over certain categories of information and sought to dismiss some of the plaintiff's claims on that basis. It was actually a, a, a fairly unusual invocation of the privilege uh, because the challenged government program was a purely domestic one. Um, and even the very name of the state secrets privilege implies that these are uh, secrets that we have from our foreign enemies. It is sometimes referred to as military secrets or state secrets privilege to protect the national defense or foreign relations. And so it, it's used in a, in a purely domestic context is, is extremely, uh, extremely rare. 
the plaintiffs argued that dismissing the case under the state secrets privilege was improper because FISA establishes a different way to deal with purported state secrets. There's a provision in FISA, it's uh, section 1806F, that sets out various categories of situations where FISA surveillance might become at issue in a case and says that in those cases, if the attorney general uh, files an affidavit uh, certifying that disclosure uh, of this material would, would harm the national security. So basically the state secrets privilege, but invoked by the attorney general rather than the head of the agency. In those cases, the court will review in camera and ex parte the information relating to the surveillance and determine whether the surveillance was lawfully authorized and conducted. And so this is a provision that basically says the court has to have this in-camera ex parte process where they look at the actual material and they not only make a determination whether it's privileged or not, but also make a determination as to whether the surveillance was lawful or not. The district court did not buy this argument. It dismissed not only the discrimination claims that the plaintiffs have brought for which the government had sought dismissal of those claims, but also the fourth Fourth Amendment claim, which the government hadn't even sought dismissal of that claim. So that was pretty irregular. And the court basically held that this provision of FISA only applies to FISA challenges, not to civil lawsuits brought on other grounds. Uh, the Ninth Circuit reversed, and it held that under the plain terms of Section 1806F, and the plain terms of, of the statute and the history and the purpose of the statute, that the only possible reading of this was that the 1806F mechanism uh, should be used in any case uh, involving an attempt to either obtain or suppress FISA surveillance, uh, information about FISA surveillance. So that the government obviously sought cert, which was granted. And that's going to be the issue on appeal is whether or not this provision of FISA preempts I shouldn't say preempts the state secrets doctrine because essentially it acknowledges the existence of the doctrine, but it provides an alternative way to deal with it, essentially. So instead of uh, going through the, the various steps that have evolved through the common law to deal with the privilege, it has a particular way of dealing with it that involves the court actually looking at this evidence in camera ex parte and ruling on the lawfulness of the surveillance. In one perspective, the case raises a big issue about fundamental issue is about what the what the nature of the state secret privilege is. As I said at the outset, some people have said it's of constitutional dimensions. Others say it's an evidentiary privilege. And that raises the question, well, what can Congress do to regulate or eliminate the state secrets privilege? And could Congress, if it was an evidentiary privilege, uh, Congress certainly can you know, uh, amend the laws of evidence or provide new rules of evidence, which have to be followed by the courts and the executive branch. If it's a constitutional inherent authority of the executive branch, there may be more limited things that Congress could do, perhaps channeling things or providing rules and regulations for invocation of assertion of national security uh, harms when information is disclosed, etc. But there may be limits on what Congress can do. I, I don't really think the court's probably going to delve too much into that. It's a more fundamental question. I think the question here is that 1806F provision really an issue in this case? Does it really apply? Or, and if not, then regular state secrets can apply. And other, otherwise, um, I, don't, I, think, I don't think it's really controversial to have this channeled through 1806F if it does apply. I think there's good arguments that it doesn't. But it, it may be a case more in the weeds just about 
the scope and nature of 1806F as opposed to the you know, sort of bigger, more fundamental question of, you know, could Congress tomorrow just get rid of the state service privilege? Could they in FOIA say that instead of there being all this deference to the executive branch on classified materials, that uh, the courts have de novo review of it as to whether something is properly classified or not? That would raise big constitutional issues. I don't think those kind of fundamental or, you know, constitutional issues are really at stake here. I just want to add one thing to that, which is uh, if, in fact, the privilege has constitutional underpinnings, and again, I think that the case law is, is not 100% clear on the degree to which these constitutional overtones are present. But if that's the case, that in itself doesn't tell you anything about what Congress could or couldn't do, because as we know from Youngstown, the only time that Congress is disabled from legislating on a matter in which there is some kind of Article II authority is if Congress itself has no authority over the subject matter. So as long as Congress also has authority over, over these issues of national security information and protection of national security information, if Congress has any authority in that area, then it can legislate in this area. It's, it's only if it is an exclusively presidential prerogative that, that Congress's ability to legislate becomes limited. And Congress has in the past legislated many times on on national security information, the protection of national security information, I think it would be uh, it would be erroneous to argue that the president has exclusive authority in this province. I'm also not sure that it's going to be that easy to escape this this question of whether Congress can, and I'm not going to say overrule the state secrets privilege, but create this other way of dealing with state state secrets. Because if the court finds that 1806F does apply in this situation, which is the reading that is more consistent with the plain text, I think the, the arguments against tend to be based on other canons of interpretation, then the court's going to have to, I think, get into this question of whether this is an area where Congress will legislate. And again, for the reasons I said earlier, that the, even the very fact that the Supreme Court granted cert in this case, I'm worried about how the court might rule on this. Um, to me, for the reasons I said, it seems that Congress does have its own constitutional authority to legislate uh, in this area, but I- I'm worried about what the court will hold. I'll end by asking both of you, and Liza, maybe you can go first. What can we expect from oral arguments in this case, and what might the justices be most interested in? I think there will be a lot of questions about congressional intent in 1806F and whether and how the statute applies because the easiest way to dispose of the case without wrestling with some of these constitutional questions is to hold that 1806F is is not applicable uh, in this type of challenge. The Brennan Center actually filed an amicus brief along with uh, four other organizations in the case, setting forth some sort of practical reasons why we thought that that would be a very problematic way to rule, because if that were the way that the court interpreted 1806F, then that would, for the most part, take civil litigation in FISA cases against unauthorized surveillance or FISA surveillance that that violated the law in some way off the table. It would make civil litigation effectively an impossible option for people who uh, were victims of of unlawful foreign intelligence surveillance. And there are are really no other good ways right now to get accountability for, for unlawful surveillance in this area. There's the FISA court, but the FISA court has, has proven to be dysfunctional in any number of ways recently. And there's also criminal cases, but the, but the government has in the past and, and potentially currently 
uh, not comply fully with its obligations to notify criminal defendants when it's using evidence derived from FISA surveillance. And even if they provide a notification in every case where they're supposed to, that is still just a tiny, tiny percentage of the number of cases where the government is conducting foreign intelligence surveillance. So it's not a very effective way to get at violations of the law. So we think it's extremely important that civil litigation remain a viable option. And really, we think that's why Congress passed 1806F, to ensure that not just that criminal defendants um, would have a way to vindicate their rights, but that civil litigation would also be a viable option in these cases. I, I agree with all of that. I, I expect a very wonky argument about 1806F, about the three different circumstances where which it applies to under the statute and how that fits in with this particular case. I would expect also to the extent they kind of go a little bit broader for that the court to be thinking about if they construe 1806F in, this, in a particular way, are they opening the door to a, a huge number of, of cases about uh, electronic surveillance and people trying to get information about that program without being subject to the state secret privilege and how much, you know, the parties and the amici uh, very much debate about how much this would be opening the door to such, you know, to a number of, of, of like claims or related claims in that way. And I don't expect there'll be a lot of questions sort of just questioning the roots and the dimensions of state secret privilege or a lot sort of getting into the merits of the the claims of religious discrimination, you know, uh, at issue here. I mean, the case also involves this big policy issues about what the government was up to and, and, and abuses of power, which could be subject to questions perhaps by Justice Sotomayor and a few others. But I expect more cases sort of focused on the language of 1806F and its application to this particular circumstance. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Hamza Shatu. Our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com lawfare to get an ad-free version of this podcast and weekly live events. As always, thanks for listening.